Hi, and welcome to episode 28 of the Voice of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Matt Sabolsky. Today, I'm joined by two special guests, Dr. Todd McCarty from the University of Alabama at Birmingham School of Medicine, an infectious disease expert, as well as Dr. Justin Hovey from the Alabama College of Osteopathic Medicine. He is an assistant professor in internal medicine and pediatrics. But first, a message from our sponsor. For the last five episodes, I've been telling you about Suki, the AI-powered, voice-enabled digital assistant. They believe that using the term burnout is a form of victim blaming. They believe in a future where technology is assistive yet invisible. They believe in AI that helps doctors do their job and gets out of the way. They believe that doctors are real human beings and deserve to be treated as such. If you'd like a demo of their software or just want to learn more, please go to get.suki.ai. That's get.suki.ai to learn more. Yes, I'm uh, Dr. Justin Hovey. Um, I'm an associate professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the Alabama College of Osteopathic Medicine. I'm also the medical director for ACOM Ashford Clinic, which is a uh, rural clinic um, just east of Dothan. Um, my, my background um, is in internal medicine and pediatrics, obviously. Um, I also have a BS in microbiology from the University of Alabama. Justin, thanks for coming on the show. Todd, uh, Dr. McCarty, please uh, tell us uh, about your role, your title, uh, what your focuses are. Yeah, uh, I am an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Uh, I did my medicine and infectious diseases training here at UAB, board certified in both. And as of July of last year, I'm also our program director for our fellowship program. My particular interests within ID are sort of a mix of caring for transplant patients as well as just general infectious diseases as a whole. Well, once again, thank you both for coming on the show. Um, I'm going to kick off with a pretty broad question to you both to answer, which is, why is COVID-19 novel, and what's the concern with it? Well, first and foremost, we got to think about uh, coronavirus in general. It has been around and infecting humans for many, many years, uh, millions of years, I should say. Some will infect humans and animals. Some will just infect humans. Um, some do cross over. Uh, the beta coronaviridae, they are um, the viruses that encompass uh, SARS, so the severe acute respiratory syndrome viruses. And this particular virus, uh, SARS-CoV-2, which uh, is, is really kind of a mutated strain, if you will, of uh, the original SARS virus, and it has to do with the uh, spike protein. Suffice it to say that, uh, you know, this particular strain looks like some other strains um, with a little bit different uh, change in the, the main protein that allows it for to bind and get into the human cells. I think that's a, a great overview of the sort of features of the virus itself that make it so problematic. I think the other side of this is that given that it's novel, given that it's uh, a virus that our own immune systems haven't been exposed to, the at-risk population is essentially the entire world, and it makes the potential for spread and the potential for people to acquire the infection much, much higher. And it's going to make their immune responses slower because they don't have their immune system's memory to rely on to be able to respond faster. 
um, I think some of the unique features that we've learned over the past couple of months uh, that really kind of potentiate that spread are that we got a lot of people that have minimal to no symptoms, and it seems like people are most contagious in that sort of pre-symptomatic and asymptomatic spread phase. And so people are going out, they're doing or were going out and doing their usual things unbeknownst to them that they uh, were carrying the virus and being able to kind of shed it and um, leave droplets for others to kind of pick up and then ultimately acquire the infection. Um, and it's allowed for a very sort of high degree of undetected and unchecked spread. And we've seen that kind of take its toll throughout the world. Each of you, could you give us a sense of where do you see our best bet in uh, protecting the populace or getting to a stable place of managing this virus in the population? Matt, one of the things that I was want to piggyback on Todd on that was the, um, so the, the SARS, the original SARS virus, um, had uh, interestingly enough some uh, a group of the uh, infected a population that were called super spreaders who seemed to be uh, shedding the virus in higher concentrations uh, compared to the rest of the populace the difference though being is that the original SARS uh, people were um, shedding mostly when they were in their symptomatic period SARS kind of fizzled out on its own in July of 2003 and you know, last known cases were in Ontario, Canada. I believe that's correct. There was a vaccine that was created for the original SARS, um, was never used because that one, you know, petered out. So yeah, the, the vaccine I think is what's going to get us over the hump with this particular virus because you're gonna need at least, um, you know, half of the population immune to the virus before it goes away um, because it's spread in the asymptomatic phase uh, and we have asymptomatic carriers. The vaccine is gonna be necessary to do that. And what I anticipate happening is, and we're on the other side of this in the country, um, we may get down low enough to where we have, you know, a kind of background virus still around over the summer. Um, it may be a little higher than just background, but we'll be seeing more people still showing up to clinic with symptoms. But I feel like in the fall, we may see another spike because of that. I think there's great hope for a vaccine. I think the timing of when one might be commercially available is going to be really tricky. You know, questions around sort of how quickly can you get to sort of broad scale trials in humans and in an era of, you know, sort of active social distancing, limiting sort of interaction with the healthcare system and in the setting of like a staged recovery, how do you assess the effectiveness of the virus? How much are people, or sorry, the effectiveness of the vaccine? How much are people actually sort of in coming into contact with it and the potential for risk? And so while a pandemic would seem to be like an ideal setting, to test a virus and see if it's going to be effective or not. There's been so many other things put in place to limit its spread. How will we know how much the different aspects of that vaccine or otherwise are playing a role in slowing down the spread? So I, I honestly, I don't 
I don't know. Um, I'm not optimistic for it to happen fast. I think something available in the fall is is a stretch. Something available a year from now I think would be great, but still probably a bit on the optimistic side. We don't have outside of the flu vaccine great vaccines against respiratory viruses, and I think that speaks to a lot of the, the difficulty in managing these sorts of, of illnesses, whether it's coronavirus or any of the, the other sort of numerous families of viruses. What I just heard each of you say is that until we have a vaccine, uh, there still will be the potential for spread. And yet uh, we certainly aren't going to see that by June 1st. And some states are talking about opening back up potentially that soon. Uh, I guess my first question to each of you is, is that too soon if we do it in appropriate staged steps? And then two, Besides the vaccine, are there any other technologies that are being developed right now that might allow us to better monitor the, the public at large for if they have the disease or not? Well, I think testing is going to be key to kind of reverse course on where we are right now. Um, we're going to have to have widespread testing. So if you have antibody testing, that will you know, allow to know that someone has been exposed or does have immunity. Uh, people who have been exposed may not have you know, complete immunity to the virus either. Um, so it's going to have to be a combination, in my mind, of testing, but you're going to have to socially distance, you're going to have to wear masks, you're going to have to take appropriate precautions, but you just can't guarantee that. If we're not past the peak far enough and we reopen too soon, we will go back through this all over again. A lot of people will die. Obviously, we don't want the economy to fail and we don't want people to be out of work for long periods of time, but we also need to protect life. Yeah, I definitely agree with Justin. I think um, the conversation around reopening the economy in any fashion is going to be carried on the back of testing. I think where the question we have to ask ourselves is how do we end up in this position to begin with? Well, we had inadequate ask at, uh, access to testing, um, inadequate application of the testing that we had as well. And so uh, there's going to be a, a second wave. It's inevitable. People are going to get back out. There's going to be interactions in the community, and uh, we'll see a rise in cases again. It's a matter of how much and how well can we detect them. So we have to have an ability to have huge amounts of testing and repeated testing and frequent testing, and it has to be available all across the country in every community. It can't be sort of isolated to pockets that have better access than other parts of the country. Um, I think the, the rebuild um, and the reintroduction of society is going to be very, very region dependent. Um, and I think as much as we need to have kind of a background of of ability to test and identify, we also have to make sure that we can care for all the new infections that are still to come. Do we have, have we reestablished the supply chains of PPE to help protect healthcare workers when these patients do end up in the hospital? Do we have treatment data around some of these investigational agents that say, okay, well, these drugs will work. These can limit some of the morbidity and mortality when people inevitably do get infected. And if we can't say yes to these questions, I'm a really, really big skeptic that there's going to be a significant progress back towards a normal economy. And I think a vaccine is 
the answer to getting back to a truly normal economy and our sort of way of life that we were used to. I think there's going to be a, a middle ground new normal that we're going to live in for quite some period of time while we wait for those things to happen. Some things were a little bit closer to having answers at the moment than we did two months ago. I think the whole nation's learned a lot in the past couple of months, but there's still far, far more to learn in the coming weeks and months. Um, and we have to be prepared for a lot of false dawns. You know, and the, the process has to be very, very slow. We know there's a two-plus-week lag time in any sort of intervention and seeing what kind of impact it has. And so it has to be a very gradual, very measured, with very clear guidance on if this, then that. If you rise above a certain rate, then you've got to lock it back down and it's got to happen quickly. This is not the new normal, but it's the now normal. Stephen B. Haas was on our show um, a few weeks ago and he said something profound to me and Reed, which was the United States has been sort of lulled over the last 20 years and not having a deal with a massive respiratory outbreak like Asia has. And even at home, if you're watching television shows like Anthony Bourdain or other travel shows and they're in Asia, Cambodia, Thailand, Vietnam, China, uh, 2012, 2014, in the background, the citizens of those countries are wearing masks. So our future is likely to be universal masking, temperature checks in large areas, um, and maybe some tracing if we can get it, which neither Todd nor Justin said explicitly. And we realize it's sort of a paradox to being an American to even consider doing something like that. But what would it take to get back to a normal economy? Let me segue. Gilead. Stock went wild, right? few weeks ago, they had an uncontrolled, sorry, they had a non-control arm study released on COVID-19 treatment with a new pharmaceutical. Would either one of you be able to sort of talk to us a little bit about what you've heard about that, what the hope is for that, and maybe a pharmaceutical answer before a vaccine answer to get us back on track with a, a normal economy? My baseline nature is to be a huge skeptic. Um, about pretty much everything. Um, and so I guess I'll, I'll touch on each of a couple of points. Um, the masking thing, I'm a huge skeptic because I see people out wearing masks and they're leaving parts of their nose, mouth, other things uncovered. Um, they're frequently touching their face. They're not washing their hands. And so I don't know how much masking um, will sort of penetrate our society. And even if it does, how much help will that be? I don't know. There's actually been an interesting um, uh, development on Twitter. Of, there's a, a crowd that says actually face shields might be a lot more reasonable, um, allows you to kind of still view people's faces and be able to, you know, read lips and maybe make communication easier. And you have this impermeable um, plastic sheet that limits your ability to spread droplets and also limits the ability to, for droplets to make it to your face. Given the nature of vaccine trials, it's always going to be delayed compared to treatment trials. If um, drug studies are going to ultimately show benefit and be effective, um, those inevitably happen a lot quicker. My concern around all of the drug studies that have been reported so far is that almost none of them have a comparator group. So the initial remdesivir data that came out in the New England Journal, uh, I forget if it was the beginning of this week versus last week, it's just a, it's essentially a, a 
accounts to a case series. You know, we had this collection of patients that gave them this drug. This is what happened. We don't know if the drug actually did anything. We don't know if that's just sort of the natural history of infection across those places. And so to know if there's hope for Gilead's drug remdesivir or any of another sort of multitude of candidate treatments, it's got to come from having a comparator. There is no effective treatment, and so that comparator has to be placebo for now uh, until such time we have some kind of baseline treatment to then use to evaluate new drugs for superiority or not. The goal of doing something is better than nothing isn't always true. Sometimes doing nothing, you know, medicines come with risks. They come with adverse events. There's harm in throwing anything against the wall to see if something sticks. We have to be very careful, even in the era of a pandemic, to collect data in a scientifically rigorous manner so that we don't allow this the development of dogma that's not helpful but even harmful. Not having that control arm makes it very difficult to ascertain the, the appropriate effectiveness of the medications without having controls and not um, being able to uh, parse out the information that we need, it can be dangerous. Give our listeners a little bit of overview on what you all are seeing. As uh, Matt mentioned, we interviewed Dr. Haas uh, last week on the show, and he talked a lot about New York and how right now PPE is extremely scarce. Uh, is Alabama in a similar situation? New technologies that we are or rolling out with respect for how we deliver care. Um, certainly we are ramping up both uh, telephone-based um, telemedicine. Uh, we're ramping up access to video-based telemedicine. Those were things that um, there's a nephrologist here, Eric Wallace, has been building out those services and providing that outreach to more rural communities. He's a nephrologist. And so this is something that's been building at UAB for the past couple of years, primarily in the outpatient setting, but interestingly, they've also been doing um, inpatient um, telemedicine consultation, both in nephrology and ICU-level care as well. The technology is kind of there. It's been slowly been building, but then, of course, we hit this inflection point where now everybody's pushing to gain access to this. And so there's been some, and the interest and desire to ramp it up is ever-present now, and we're kind of scrambling to do as much of it as possible. There's uh, lots of effort at um, looking at the reusability and sterilization of, especially N95 masks, tend to be the most common things. Um, that people are looking to re-sterilize and, and allow for reuse, um, face shields as well, given they're made out of impermeable materials. It's hard to reuse a, a sort of cottony type disposable isolation gown. You're not really going to reuse gloves. And it sort of begs the question of, you know, we've treated all of these things as disposable for decades and years. Could this lead to a bit of a green movement? in healthcare and the PPE realm, um, necessity becomes the mother of invention, invention sometimes. And so I think that's a, a great thing that we will be able to carry forward and sort of once we're out of this sort of pandemic and run on supplies era, I think that'll be great. I guess the other sort of interesting telemedicine effort that blends into the PPE situation is actually using um, video conferencing systems on the inpatient side. 
um, just in our own hospital to limit some of the in and out of patients' rooms and utilization of supplies. They have some video abilities for docs, for nurses to be able to video conference with patients in our own hospital. I think the other technological aspect that is interesting to watch is just the explosion in diagnostic testing and abilities, both in direct testing for the virus and labs developing their own tests, but also the hunt for what does the antibody response look like and what does it mean. Um, so lots of, of fascinating things that are happening. Um, so we cover a wide swath of, of Southeast Alabama as well as parts of Georgia and uh, Northwest Florida, close to 700,000 people. So a lot of the things that you see from the Alabama Department of Public Health about the number of patients that are diagnosed in Houston County is kind of a uh, misnomer in the sense that um, in the Southeast Health right now, we've had 10 COVID deaths. Uh, there's three in the county uh, that are outside of what we've reported. So uh, our hospital right now is um, at max capacity um, and they are utilizing quite a bit of PPE and they're very concerned about um, their supplies moving forward. They actually utilize the labor pool of people who've been furloughed from uh, outpatient surgeries, et cetera, to um, actually start fabricating uh, gowns that are reusable. Um, they have a pattern and there are people sewing. They created uh, yesterday 2,200 gowns. Um, we have people making masks uh, out the, from around the um, uh, area who are donating them to the hospital for the patients, just you know, the usual cloth reusable masks. And we have had um, 3D printing from ACOM to create face shields. You know, the necessity <laughs> uh, brings out the best in, uh, in ingenuity, um, and it's showing around here. What we actually started doing here is uh, evaluating patients out in the parking lot. We have been utilizing uh, telehealth uh, to reach our patients. The only issue we, that we really run into is uh, internet service. Um, so some of our patients just can't do Zoom. They don't have, they can't FaceTime on their iPhones. Um, so we do have to go to telephone for the majority of our patients. Decrease PPE usage by doing a Zoom into a room, um, mostly with consultants right now. And the ER has done it where they evaluate the patient once and then they leave the um, Zoom capabilities in there to reassess the patient uh, without having to go back in repeatedly and um, waste PPE. Um, so from our rural perspective, um, you know, I think our challenges, uh, are a lot socioeconomic and infrastructure. The country has been somewhat enamored with Dr. Fauci out of DC. Um, he wasn't well known before this and now he's very well known if he wasn't prior to this in smaller circles. That being the case, uh, if you were in his shoes, what would you tell the public? What would you advise senators and presidents and governors on a way forward, or at least the panel of people we should be consulting with to make our decisions about getting us to a healthier place and even preventing 
we have to preach patience and investment. Um, there has to be investment in access both to care as well as testing. Uh, and it has to be patient and an understanding that we're going to get things wrong. Uh, and then whatever we get wrong, we learn from it so that we can improve. Um, I think the biggest thing for patients is, you know, we make a small step. We have some amount of relaxing, and then we watch for what's going to feel like too long of a period of time to see what the impact is. And then we're going to make some other small step, or maybe we have to take a backward step. Um, I think the biggest thing and the thing that I think frustrates me a little bit when I see reactions to various things are, you know, models and predictions are sort of what they are. Um, they're not perfect. And just because whatever that model predicted didn't come to pass doesn't mean the reaction to it was wrong. Um, their information, they provide information, and we use that to make decisions. And then we see what happens. We admit what went right or what went wrong, and then we learn from that and apply the next one. So we may get things wrong, and to not get frustrated with the guidance and the leadership. This is proof that our public health infrastructure is inadequate. And if we want to prevent a future episode of this, there has to be a profound, profound investment in public health um, and access. Um, I think one of the other things that our Dean Selwyn Vickers has commented on in recent weeks is that health disparities that have existed in the United States for a very long time are being exacerbated by this. And we're seeing profound effects of this and profound poor outcomes in certain populations because of those sort of baseline disparities. And if we want to prevent those things and prevent a future where those things get worse, we have to invest in our population and invest in public health. Slow and careful steps are what's needed um, for us to get back to where we were before. And it's not going to be easy. It's, and there's going to be some hiccups along the way. And we don't need to go out and um, powerhouse this <laughs> um, because it's that's not going to be um, reasonable for the populace. Um, there will be many more lives lost if we do that. And there's still going to be lives lost even doing it um, in a slow, careful, uh, stepwise fashion. If we don't invest in these areas and we don't invest in our infrastructure for public health, then we are going to lose in the long run. Matt, you know me for a long time and you know how I've always advocated uh, for more universal coverage. And uh, this is kind of exposing uh, our weaknesses where it's a lot of us who've been in healthcare for a long time have always seen it, but uh, now it's uh, seen worldwide for sure. The uh, lid has been opened. Helpbeatcovid19.org, uh, tracking the COVID-19, especially in rural America. You know, Todd, you're a faculty member at UAB, but Justin, you are, you are rural Alabama. Can you guys each talk about that, or are you guys using that in any way, shape, or form? Um, when UAB announced this tool, I immediately went to the website and entered into my information and my fortunately lack of symptoms. And I think one of the really sort of cool features about that website 
is um, that it gets back in touch with you. And I didn't realize that until one of my friends sort of sent me a message. I think she had actually gotten her information into the system even before I did. So every few days I get a text message from the website asking me how I'm feeling. Am I still feeling good or have I gotten sick and have I developed symptoms? And so I think it's a really cool tool. Um, I think the more people that use it, the better. Essentially, we've been doing all of our testing at um, Southeast Health or at the um, or at Flowers through the hospital. Um, we don't really have any drive-through testing or anything like that that will um, you know, help us uh, increase the numbers. But I'm very interested, though, in this help beat COVID um, because I would like to get that information out and uh, start utilizing it around here since we don't have the resources, again, for the contact tracing, et cetera. Last week, the NIH put out a call for um, volunteers to participate in a seroprevalence study. So they would send you a home blood collection kit to uh, then send in and look for antibodies and get a better sense given our limited access to active viral testing. What is the actual number of people out there that have been infected with coronavirus to help sort of planning for the future? Dr. Hovey, Dr. McCarty, thanks for joining Reed and I on the Voice of Healthcare podcast. We appreciate your expertise and your time. 